Welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast, hosted by Angel Deer. In this podcast, we explore the mysteries of spirituality and consciousness. In each episode, we dive deep into the realms of human experiences, our rapidly changing world, and the unseen realms, tapping into the universal wisdom that connects us all. Whether you're a seasoned spiritual seeker, starting to awaken to the possibilities of a more expansive reality, or want support on your journey, this podcast is for you. Join me as we explore topics such as shamanism, spiritual transformation, holistic healing, the medicine path, energy healing, plant medicine, ancient wisdom, and more. Our guests are respected elders and experts in their fields, and we'll learn from their insights and experiences as we journey together on the path of spiritual growth. If you can, please consider supporting this podcast by joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why. Once again, it is patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why. Now, let's dive into today's episode. I personally had an encounter uh, with a craft with my whole family and friends being involved. I was around, I think, seven or eight years old. Um, I was at the time in holidays with my family in Corsica, a small island in the Mediterranean. We saw that it stayed there for probably very short, five seconds, ten seconds, and then it flew over us, right above us, very close, and disappeared into the sky at very high speed. My parents or my grandparents or a friend I've ever seen before because first it had absolutely no noise, which is very unusual for human craft that are, you know, going at high speed. And the day after, in the local newspaper, there was seven or eight encounters by different people on the island. And, you know, since then I've been convinced that there is something else. I spent a lot of night outside because of my work in astronomy and I've experienced things, you know, but more in a, I would say, far deep sky with unusual movement, unusual lights, things that cannot be satellite or planes uh, in terms of their movement and their speed. So probably if you're still listening right now, you're part of the people that believe there is an unexplained phenomenon out there. Welcome everyone. It's really a, a pleasure to be here today um, with Kim, uh, who's a dear friend and was a student in my class. And I'm very excited about the topic we are going to talk about today. Um, and before we dive in, I would just want to tell you a little bit about Kim. So hello, Kim first. Hi, how are you? Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited about this conversation and talking about UFOs and those phenomenons that are, you know, I would say unexplained most of the time, but there is a lot of cultural background about them. It's something that men, you know, humanity have witnessed for a very long time. And uh, today we're going to explore a little bit about this topic and it's in relation to a class or a course a lecture that Kim is going to give uh, starting on March 6th 
Uh, it will be two and a half hours lectures for uh, six Wednesdays. And here we're just going to introduce the topic, but also, you know, share some fascinating fact about it. And I want to tell you a little bit about Kim because very often, I think when you think about UFOs and people that have seen them, you think about crazy people or people on the fringe or, you know, weird people. And I have to say that, you know, Kim definitely has a very uh, strong uh, educational background and you know take this subject very seriously so kim holds a phd in philosophy and like i said was a past participant in one of our class but she's currently a philosophy professor at molo university as well as a director of research and development at the john e mac institute and she has taught courses on the phenomenology of ufos uap through the Society for UAP Studies, as well as courses on Native American philosophy at our university. Our academic research centers on the lived experience of individuals who have reported UAP encounters, as well as ET contact as an ongoing lived reality in Native American societies and cultures. And recently, in the summer of 2023, she conducted a formal study of individuals who reported contact with non-human intelligence, NHI, and how such experiences had influenced their belief, their values, and their worldviews. And this research is suggested sorry, that UAP, UFO encounters are deeply intertwined with contact with non-ordinary realities a new paradigm for understanding consciousness. And that's the reason we're here today. Because as you know, shamanic views of the world and mystic perspective of the world are about understanding consciousness and the way it manifests in realities and ways that are maybe beyond what our mainstream culture have taught us. Uh, so Kim, welcome. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here as well and to be having this conversation and to just have this as a platform for discussion of this very important and very interesting topic. Yeah, when you reach out to me and say, hey, you know, I would like to talk about this. Uh, uh, and I guess a part of you was like, I'm not sure he's going to think um, real or that maybe that I'm crazy or is that okay? It's funny because I was, you know, we've known each other for many years, right? But there was this little tension. And I guess when we talk about UAP, UFO, ETs, uh, there's always that little reaction. Despite, in fact, so many people, when you have private conversation, like to talk about the subject and often have experience. So before we start and go into the subject, what brought you into those studies? What, what called you into it? where you are dotted, where you have an encounter. I'd love to know about that because I don't know. I didn't want to ask you the question before the podcast, before we record. I, I, it's an interesting story, actually. Um, I mean, I, it's not going to be as exciting as is my own abduction account. I, I don't have a, a direct, you know, um, experience or account. But, uh, you know, before before I dive right into it, you know, I, I do think you're correct that there's this, this conception that everybody who is, you know, seriously interested in, in UFOs is kind of like wearing a tinfoil hat or something like that. And it, it makes us a little bit hesitant to talk about it. So hopefully through, you know, uh, more discussions like this, we'll see that it actually is, a, you know, a very uh, 
common and serious and important thing to be talking about. Um, what brought me here? Um, I, you know, I, as I was growing up, I always was very interested in just accounts and, and stories of, of people who had had some kind of an encounter. Um, the Hopkinsville encounter um, that took place in Kentucky really interested me. I actually have memories of, of being, you know, like I think 11 or 12 years old and being up, um, you know, at night, just kind of reading about it. It, it was very interesting to me. And what kind of stuck out to me is that these were very ordinary people who had no reason to lie or make up these stories about what had happened. And especially with Hopkinsville, the people, um, you know, the police officer who went to investigate the site, you know, he wrote in his notes how terrified these people really were. Uh, you know, he said there's no way that this was, uh, that they were making this up or that they were just spooked by some, you know, people were trying to say, oh, they just saw owls or something like that. And and, and really, when you read the account, there was no way. Um, so, so you know, I always just kind of, it, it always interested me as a topic, but um, in, it, it was more just kind of like a, a side interest. And then in uh, December of 2020, um, I was looking for something to watch before I went to bed. And this documentary was recommended for me. And it's called The Phenomenon by, and it's directed by James Fox. And it's extremely good. I recommend to everybody to watch it. It's a very recent documentary on UFOs. And um, I just felt very strongly when it was there in my recommended for you, like, this is something that you're supposed to watch. And so I watched it. And um, at the end of that documentary, there's an account of the Ariel School Encounter, which is an encounter that until then in 2020, I had never heard of. And the Ariel School Encounter um, had 60 witnesses uh, of young children, again, who had no reason to lie. Uh, they not only saw a UFO land, but they saw some type of non-human being emerge from the UFO or from the craft, the perceived craft. And they stood by the story to this day. You know, it had profound um, effects on them, profound, uh, you know, effects on their lives going forward. And I've read some of their testimony, uh, you know, now 20, some 20 years later about it. So I was very intrigued by this encounter, but I was also intrigued. Uh, there was an individual who went to um, interview these children who was named um, John Mack. Um, John Mack, let's see if you can see this book or not. No, with my background, it's not showing up. That's okay. Um, John Mack was a Harvard psychiatrist who uh, was the first person to, or the first academic to really take seriously the accounts of individuals who have reported contact. Um, he wrote two books on the subject, uh, Abduction, and then the second one is called Passport to the Cosmos. And, you know, he originally, he was a psychiatrist, and he originally, you know, he was interested because he thought, you know, these people have some kind of psychopathology. They're reporting that they've been, you know, abducted into a craft. Um, but when he actually worked with them, you know, he concluded they did not have any serious psychopathology. And uh, he he really became convinced that they were encountering something real, but also something that challenged kind of all of our traditional ways of thinking about physical and non-physical phenomena and what's real and what isn't. And uh, so I read, you know, both of his books and me as a philosophy professor, as an academic, I, I just found everything that he was saying so 
first of all, kind of mind blowing to me because I, you know, I had, I knew about UFO accounts, but I did not know some of these the details of some of these abduction encounters, and especially to hear it coming from, you know, a very well educated psychiatrist. Um, so that was kind of like that was that was a turning point for me. It was kind of just like a light bulb <laughs> went 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 off. Um, and, and I realized that there was something really important here to look at. And so since then, you know, it's been, it's only been a little over three years, but I, I've conducted quite a bit of research. I mean, you went over some of it in the beginning. Um, you know, I, at first, the first thing to do was to, to read as much as I could. Um, and then um, last summer, I actually started conducting my own research with people who report uh, contact with uh, NHIs. And another thing in, in John's second book, in, in Dr. Mack's second book, he had interviews with three indigenous uh, shamans or medicine people. One was from South Africa. One was from um, uh, uh, Brazil. And uh, one was Native American Choctaw. Um, and, and their kind of encounters. And that's what actually opened me up to native or, or extraterrestrial contact or just the long history of et contact in native american societies and so that then became a kind of a new um, focal point for me i was already interested in in native american worldviews um and then this additional you know connection with the ufos uap learning that there's a very long history of indigenous tribes all around the world actually having ongoing contact um with you know, ETs or, or uh, some type of, of non-human intelligence or NHI also really opened the door for me. Um, in terms of my own contact experiences, I have had one experience that was what we would call a CE5, so a, a human-initiated encounter where um, you actually put out the intention that, that you want to see something. Um, and, and so we, we did this, we did the meditation, you know, we put out the intention that, that we were calling in that we'd like to have uh, some type of ET contact. Um, and a, a white orb did come down and it, I mean, it, it appeared in the sky above us. Um, it hovered, it was silent. It didn't make any noise. Um, and then it hovered there for about a minute and then it disappeared. Uh, there were six of us, uh, and we all saw it. That's my only you know, uh -huh. somewhat of an encounter, uh, but it was very, um, very profound for me. Um, but more of it has come really just through this, this interest in, you know, first of all, it, it, John Mack's work was kind of the catalyst, um, but then understanding contact as an ongoing lived reality for Indigenous people for thousands of years, um, that really kind of opened up a new way of looking at the whole phenomenon. Yeah, and I, you know, we're going to go diving a little bit about it today. Um, and just for for full disclosure here, I was sharing with Kim before we started the podcast interview here, that video that I personally had an encounter uh, with a craft with my whole family and friends being involved. I was around, I think, seven or eight years old. Um I was at the time in holidays with my family in Corsica, which is a small island in the Mediterranean. And we were having a post-dinner board game outdoor. It was a summer. It's very warm in Corsica. So we were just having a nice board game all together. And there was my whole family, probably, you know, 10 to 12 people, some friends. And at some point, 
the sun was already kind of setting or set and we are facing the the east uh, side of the island where we were on the coast so you know it was quite dark already in the east horizon in the evening and we saw that very round shapes on the horizon that looked so something really large and far away kind of metallic shining light type of shape i would say and that thing came really fast very close to us i would say probably 100 foot right above the water because we were right on the edge of the water it stayed there for probably i don't know probably very short five second ten second and then it flew over us right above us very close i would say 20 30 foot and disappeared into the sky at very high speed it was nothing I've ever seen before. My parents or my grandparents or our friends I've ever seen before because first it had absolutely no noise, which is very unusual for human craft that are, you know, going at high speed. Obviously, the shape was very unusual, but there was also, and I think that we all remember and we were really puzzled by it, there was no air movement. There was no wind at that things came up when he flew over us such a large objects you know he was probably i would say i don't know 100 foot in diameter 150 foot in diameter so you know pretty large uh, there was no air movement at all and no sound and the day after in the local newspaper there was seven or eight encounters by different people on the island the island is pretty big probably 200 300 miles at 20 miles away, 50 miles away, and even one in the south coast of France that same night. And, you know, since then, I've been convinced that there is something else. I spent a lot of night outside because of my work in astronomy. And I've experienced things, you know, but more in a, I would say, far deep sky with unusual movement, unusual lights, things that cannot be satellite or planes uh, in terms of their movement and their speed and all of that. And obviously there is tons of testimony out there. I've seen the same documentary you mentioned, which I thought was really well done. So probably if you're still listening right now, you're part of the people that believe there is an unexplained phenomenon out there. I want to talk to you a little bit about how is it in our culture today? And why did it change so much? Because when I talk to elders, to my teachers in Peru, to uh, elders and teachers in the Native American community that I work with, to literally any traditional culture in the world about the existence of life somewhere else on another planet, or maybe even on this planet, but in forms that are different than ours, right. visitors, either a spacecraft or even beings, literally nobody look at you like you are crazy. It's something that deeply ingrained and accepted in the culture and not because people are superstitious, because there are stories about it. And there is even drawings in some cultures. There is literally drawings in the stone or paintings of things that definitely do not look like something normal. And then I would just extend to that. There is, you know, a site in Peru called the Nazca Lines uh, that I visited, I think, 10 years ago, which are drawings uh, made with very small stone in the ground, but are only visible from the sky. And you need to take a small plane to see them. And some of those drawings are still unexplained. 
Some are animals that don't exist on Earth. Some are even uh, one of them looks like someone in a spacesuit with a kind of a big helmet, like you would see people uh, when they do out of space uh, exploration, coming out of the space station to repair something. It looks very much like that. And some of those lines go over 20 or 30 or 40 miles across mountain, very straight uh, and looks like landing pads or, you know, unusual lines. And when I've seen them for me, it was very obvious that, yeah, it was maybe built by humans as we know them, but there is definitely part of it that cannot be explained right. with any knowledge or technology that there could have been at the time of the Nazca civilization in that case. But today, it's kind of a funny subject, right? Like you say, people with a tinfoil tin hat, right? And people that talk about that are already on the fringe. But then you have people like you mentioned, right? Uh, John Mack was you know, a psychiatrist, you know, someone working at Harvard and didn't find any sign of psychosis or derangement of these people were completely mentally normal that had encounters. They didn't have any of the medical sign of people that were what we call crazy. That's maybe something also that we might want to kind of elaborate and discuss. So what is the perception in our culture today? Where are we at? And then, you know, we're going to go back in time and talk a little bit about Native American tribes and other Native cultures and the link between those cultures and those other forms of life. Yeah. So these are really good, you know, important questions here. You know, where we're at with our current culture, I think there, there's at least two things when we're talking about kind of the the worldview or the, the the kind of philosophy behind why we've started treating this subject the way that we have and why, you know, until very, very recently, academics who tried to publish and, and talk about this, you know, were either laughed at or they were denied their funding and grants. Um, John Mack, actually, because of the books that he published, they they put his tenure under review and they put his medical license under review because the things that they he was saying were just so contrary to how, you know, our dominant Western culture thinks about these issues. And they're just like, what he's talking about can't possibly be right or can't possibly be real. So one of the things is that Western culture or the dominant culture in our society is very influenced by anthropocentric humanism. Um, and the philosopher Michael E. Zimmerman has written about this a lot. But, you know, anthropocentric humanism is just the idea that humans are the highest intelligence and that they're kind of the sole source of all meaning and value and that kind of the rest of the world, other living things only have value if we give them value because it's kind of just you know humans are kind of the center of everything they're the, the the source not just of you know all intelligence on earth but the source of all uh, of what matters and what doesn't matter and, and that's very deeply ingrained in a lot of you know I, I have a phd in philosophy and studied primarily western philosophy and most philosophers are anthropocentric humanists you know, they, they do see the kind of the human being as kind of the highest expression of intelligence um, and kind of all other life is is just kind of 
secondary and matters only if we think that it matters or if it's useful to us. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that's been very influential or another concept is what's called Cartesian dualism. So Descartes um, was a very influential philosopher in the Western tradition. And he argued that uh, the mind, the physical and the mental, so the mind and the body were totally separate and that the mind was a totally non-physical thing and the body was physical and they could only interact through like these clear and distinct ideas, but it was very uh, it was very kind of ambiguous how they could ever interact at all. But it was just this very strong separation between, you know, the soul or spirit or mind and the physical body. And then, so that's called Cartesian dualism, dualism being two, like the the mm-hmm. mind and the and the physical or mind and matter are totally separate substances and they can't and, and they don't interact um, causally or, or they they it, they it's unclear how they interact um so at one at one point it it became it kind of went one or two different ways that we broke off from cartesian dualism it became this understanding that you know we we moved into kind of the scientific materialism age and they said okay actually just the physical is all that there is and the mental is just some kind of strange expression of the physical or this this non-physical aspect of human beings that Descartes thought was there just doesn't exist so that was one branch and then another branch was well maybe there is some type of non-physical soul or non-physical mind but whatever it is it's completely unknowable and it just has to be kind of relegated to the space of faith or, and like kind of belief and, and like religion, which is seen as kind of, you know, in, in in the academy that's seen as less than than the the sciences. So that was kind of the two roots that we took from Cartesian dualism was either to just say, well, the soul doesn't exist at all, or, you know, that the non-physical doesn't exist. Or if it does, it's completely unknowable and it's just a matter of faith and it's completely kind of separate. It's out there somewhere. Um, and that's very different from Native American worldviews where, you know, the the spiritual realm is 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 quasi-physical. You can you can interact with it in 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 physical ways. And spiritual entities can and do manifest in physical ways. You know, there's not this sharp separation. What does any of that have to do with UFOs? It might not be immediately clear, so let me connect the dots. You know, UFOs or, you know, we, we now call them UAP in the academy, unidentified aerial phenomena. It's just a more uh, academic term. But UFOs or UAP, many times within these encounters, they seem to challenge the physicalist worldview, the materialist worldview. Even what you were describing in your encounter, um, you saw something that was hovering. It was not making any noise. And then when it took off, uh, you know, it accelerated at this unbelievable speed and you didn't feel any of, you know, the wind or the, the air that should have come off of that. And that's very common in, in, UAP, in, in or UAP accounts is that these objects, whatever they are, they violate the laws of physics as we understand them. And 
in addition to just the way that the objects move, you know, they accelerate ex at speeds that are impossible. They don't have the, the they, they don't experience the air resistance that they're supposed to be. If they were just a normal physical object, they should be experiencing air resistance that they don't uh, experience. Mm -hmm. They sometimes show up on radars, but sometimes they don't. Um, they, you know, there, there's accounts of, you know, um, Air Force pilots who have fired at UAP. And when they fired, the missiles just kind of like disintegrated when it got near to the UAP. So there's all kinds of ways that these objects and the, th the things that they are reported as doing very consistently just violate the law, physical laws as we understand them. And so kind of the default reaction is, well, that can't possibly be real then, because that's that's challenging these assumptions that we have about the physical world. Additionally, UAP encounters are often accompanied by some type of non-ordinary state of consciousness in the experiencer. So they very often, you know, they might receive some type of communication telepathically. Uh, you know, there there was an account, um, Jim Penniston, uh, with the um, Rendlesham Forest UFO. He touched the side of the UFO, and when he touched it, his mind was flooded with this binary code. Um, it, it's not uncommon for someone who witnesses a UAP to either before, during, or in the aftermath experience some type of non-ordinary state of consciousness uh, that's really, again, kind of violating this, this barrier between the, the spiritual or the mental and the physical that the physical sciences really wants to make. Uh -huh. And that was something that, uh, you know, John Mack really discovered in, in Passport to the Cosmos. You know, he said, because when he started exploring other indigenous cultures and he said, you know, crossover phenomena, this idea that it's like some type of entity that exists primarily in another realm, but is capable of crossing over and manifesting in the physical in some way is very common, basically, in every other culture except the Western dominant culture that we have right now, kind of the Western scientific culture. It's just this idea that if there are non-physical beings, they don't interact with us. So all of this is to say, kind of combining these things together, um, the accounts of the descriptions of what UAP do and the descriptions of what people experience when they encounter a UAP violate a lot of um, kind of scientific tenets that people in our culture are very attached to, or at least the authorities are, are you know, many of the, 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 the academic authorities are very attached to, um, you know, th these, these views, even if it's just the idea that, you know, humans are the sole source of, of meaning and value. If we take seriously these accounts, we have to really realize that there are, you know, the, the, the these craft are, under intelligent control and there's an intelligence out there that it's something that we don't have control of that potentially higher intelligence than human beings and that 
just in and of itself, you know, produces a very strong reaction of, you know, we, we don't want to entertain this. You know, we, we want to, you know, keep with the idea of, you know, anthropocentrism, human superiority. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we if we take seriously these accounts, we also have to start really questioning some of these very deeply held assumptions that many, um, uh, you know, many scientifically minded people have um, or just some of these very deep assumptions that our culture has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's obviously that's very common, you know, I mean, the the mystic the shamanic views the witches people that you know have let's say contacts experience with through rituals ceremonies and ways of life with non-ordinary state of reality with what we call the spirit world the idea that yeah we can pick up a stone and have a conversation with it and it's available to everyone that can soften their mind and let go of their belief um it's only described as crazy by you know i always say that the only people that describe those things as crazy is people that have never tried it right. they've never experienced it they never sat in those ceremonies they never tried to have that communication and that's kind of fascinating to me that it's the point of view right i think science is a little bit more open now uh to those altered state to those views right and there's a lot of things that we've qualified as um problem of dissociation in the mind and maybe an illness and now we realize oh maybe there is something else because native communities and ancient communities say no this person is not sick maybe this person has a way to communicate with other realities or with the world that is different than us so you mentioned, and one of the topics that we'll be exploring in the class, and I want to kind of shift gear and talk a little bit about it, is the connection between those abduction, people that say, well, I've been abducted, or there is this kind of contacts. In fact, I've kind of a one personal terrifying story about it, but I, I won't share it here, but I'm pretty certain that it's a possibility, let's say. And so those accounts and the process of shamanic initiation. Right, where people go through great transformation, right? Usually to you know vision quest or you know plant medicine ceremony or other ways where people literally reverse themselves and very often can come out of it without an addiction that they have had for 20 years or with a complete shift in consciousness, usually with recovering their own power and their own uh, health. So can you tell us a little bit about the connection? Because I'm really interested. What is the connection between the two? Yeah. Yeah. So so it's a really good question. Um, there have been a couple of really interesting articles uh, written on this recently. Um, but actually, John Mack was uh, the first to really make this connection. Because so in the abduction experiencers that he um, worked with, let's let's start with them. And what let, let's talk about what an alien abduction is like. So, so these individuals, you know, they were giving accounts of um, either when they were kind of walking alone at night or in their cars or in bed. Um, all of a sudden, they'd see a very bright light. They'd feel themselves paralyzed. They'd feel themselves often floated through walls or windows. 
um, or through the roof of a car. So they, they, you know, feel themselves taken and, and, and they pass through these physical objects. They don't know how, but they do. And taken into a craft. Um, once they're on board the craft, they experience seeing, you know, often there's beings standing around them, um, the traditional with the big black eyes. Um, and they perform some type of medical procedures on them, um, often related to, you know, sometimes placing things up the nose into the brain, also related to reproduction. Um, and then they, after the medical procedures, they usually um, receive some type of communication. Um, often the communication had to do with the environment and kind of, um, you know, either the environment or nuclear uh, disaster and kind of saying, you know, if you don't stop treating the earth this way, you know, you're, you're going kind of down the wrong path and, and showing, you know, pictures of environmental and ecological destruction. And then these people would find themselves back in their beds or back in their cars. And, I, you know, the the skeptic who hears these accounts thinks, you know, well, obviously they're just you know, dreaming or hallucinating or, um, you know, lying. Some of them have been accused of lying. Um, but Dr. Mack found that they were very sincere and that often what had happened to them was very traumatizing initially. It was because it was very terrifying to people who have never, you know, if, you, if, if you've grown up in our culture and you've been told that non-human intelligences aren't real, uh, uh, when you go through an experience like that, you know, you would have literally what Dr. Mack called ontological shock. So it's just this process of having an experience that challenges everything that you thought you knew about reality. Everything you thought you knew about what is real and what isn't real is just kind of thrown into question. And you're in just a state of like literal shock and trauma. So many of the people that he, uh, you know, worked with were showing signs of, of PTSD you know they were they were very uh, traumatized by what happened to them. Um, additionally, again, lest the skeptics say this is all uh, you know in their mind, many of them would wake up with um, you know if on the craft they um, you know had had a needle put in their head, they would wake up with a puncture wound. Um, they'd wake up with marks on their body. Um, many of them experienced ongoing nosebleeds um, because with the feeling that like something had been shoved up their nose. Um, you know, many I have felt that there was some kind of object implanted in them somewhere. Um, I, some experiencers have found afterwards, they like went to the doctor and the doctor had told them like, you've had surgery. And they said, no, I've never had surgery. And the doctors were like, well, yes, you know, you've you've had surgery. Uh, I met with one experiencer. I interviewed her over the summer. One of her ovaries had been surgically removed and that she has, you know, there's no medical history of this happening. Uh, but she had ongoing abduction encounters. And afterwards, one of them um, was gone. So there, there's physical evidence of these encounters as well it's subtle it's not like a smoking gun that would necessarily convince uh, you know a, a a hard skeptic but it, it's evidence that it's not all existing just in the mind it's not just a hallucination so dr mack worked with these people who um 
at first, many of them were very terrified, traumatized. Um, and it was this, you know, process of really just being taken into this very form foreign environment and, and having this, you know, this intrusion on them and, and their bodies and also their whole worldview. But the more that he worked with them, uh, he found that many of them eventually began to go through a very significant process of transformation where this abduction experience or experiences, because it's usually not just once, were kind of this catalyst to opening them up to the possibility of other intelligences, to the possibility of kind of non-ordinary realities, uh, to the possibility of, um, of, of, of kind of spiritual realms, to an understanding of all life forms as connected. And so it actually serves a transformative process very similar to the shamanic initiation process where they emerge from this deeply troubling experience that challenges everything they thought they knew about reality and kind of come out on the other side with a whole different worldview a whole different way of thinking about consciousness, of thinking about reality, of thinking about our connections to other beings. And so in my work with experiencers this summer, I worked with people who self-reported a, a experience with a non-human intelligence. And then I asked them questions about how these experiences had affected their values, beliefs, and worldviews. And many of them had shifted very considerably uh, to a worldview in which they were seeing everything as connected, everything as one, in which they were seeing plants and animals as also conscious beings that we could communicate with. The understanding of consciousness itself as kind of non-local and that we can, you know, tap into a a first of all, a deeper consciousness, but we can also communicate with beings in non-local ways and, and you know, telepathic connections, psychic connections. Um, they also had a shift in just their ethical values. They had turned away from materialism and, and really caring about, you know, money in the material world um, and kind of turning away from really an interest in, a decreased interest in, in politics in more a turned towards a form of spirituality that was more universal and kind of about, um, you know, looking for the divinity in everybody and everything rather than, you know, a, a particular religious tradition. So this process, this, you know, as I said, this alien abduction account, at least what they perceive as being an abduction, you know, and Mac actually, uh, he 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 tried very um hard to give an account of exactly what aspects he thought were happening in the physical world and what aspects of the encounter might be happening in some type of a non-ordinary or or spiritual world and that's still a bit of an open question um but this experience as traumatic as it was opened them up to a different reality 
and a very different way of looking at reality. And in many, not all, but many of these experiencers, um, it, it represents a significant shift in their life path, their worldview, and their and and their values. Mm. Um, Matthew Roberts was an experiencer on um, the USS Theodore Roosevelt. He saw the, the famous gimbal footage that came out in two, 2015. Um, he wrote a book about his experiences in the aftermath, and he titled it Initiated, uh, because that sighting, he says, was kind of his initiation into a whole different way. Not just the sighting, but but everything that happened in the aftermath of the sighting, because he had quite a few experiences um, afterwards. Uh, but he says that whole process really opened him up to a, an entirely different way of, of thinking about uh, the world and thinking about reality and kind of put him in touch with these um, kind of spiritual dimensions of reality that he was completely uh, removed from prior to that. Hmm. You know, it's really fascinating listening to this shift in values and perception of the world, because that's really, you know, very often how people come out of shamanic initiations and rituals and with a heart that is more open with a connection to the respect of all lives, with a less materialistic and a life that is more based on relations, yeah. on the sacredness of all life. Um, yeah, kind of out of the mind into the heart type of life. Uh, what's fascinating me is that a lot of the time, it's very ordinary people. It is not people that are on shamanic path or trainings or not on native people that believe in it. It's like, you know, Mr. Random that is driving his car somewhere in the middle of Ohio, right, to his farm right. and kind of get put through that experience, which also for me is, you know, one of the proof that uh, it's, it's real because a lot of those people, including, you know, police officers and military people and academics, those people have literally nothing to gain uh, in society from this revelation because very often they are going to be fired or ostracized or, you know, mock off. And in fact, I'm pretty sure a lot of people have had this experience but never talk about it because they don't want to be making fun of. But I have a question for you a little bit. Is there, because... When you go through shamanic initiation, when you go through those practices, either you are in a traditional cultures and there's a cultural context, there is a post ceremony or pre ceremony. There's a lot of holding and love and support to go through this transformation. You know, you don't just go on a vision quest. There's a whole preparation to it. But here it happens not only to people that have absolutely no uh, understanding and you know preparation for it but also to people that then come back to a community that literally has no tool to hold it. And worse than that, it's just going to try to make them feel like they are crazy. Right? And that's, do you think, is one of the explanations also that maybe some of the experience for some people are kind of traumatic and also why it's maybe underreported because of these two aspects, because it's not in our worldviews and when you come back from it, the more story you hear about it, people are kind of making fun of. And maybe there's people listening to this and kind of laughing, you know, right now and thinking, okay, this is just insane and crazy, right? So there's a lot of resistance. And I don't know if it was even happening to me tomorrow to have such experience. 
if I would really come forth with it, because I would know all the potential, you know, consequence about it. And I may, may not want to share about it. And, you know, but yeah, we have those, you know, fighter pilots and people in the armies and policemen and the sheriff. And uh, one of the incidents that you, you mentioned, literally no more people. So I want to kind of weave that question into kind of a question about, do we have any idea why, if this is coming from somewhere else, from another form of life, why would they choose those people? And why would they do that? You know, what is the goal? Is there any goal or do we have any idea on all the encounters? And is there some kind of patterns that seems to be emerging aside from the one and you mentioned about what they're seeing and, you know, kind of value shifting, right? Is there something else that we can try to have some kind of understanding maybe if we can? It's a very interesting question. Um, and to be honest, there is going to be some research coming out of the John Mack Institute where we're trying to look for patterns and look at these exact questions. And, and one of them is is one of the questions we're going to be asking is, um, can we see a pattern in, in who is being chosen for these experiences? Because, you know, part of the problem is there hasn't been a lot of serious academic research done on this because no academic wants to take it seriously because they saw what happened to Dr. Mack and he got his tenure, you know, they, they put him basically on trial. Um, so, so it's difficult to kind of look at the metadata in terms of, you know, different researchers who have taken this up seriously, you know, David Jacobs, uh, John Mack, looking at people that Bud Hopkins interviewed. Or, or worked with. Um, I do want to go back. Um, I'll say more on that in a second. When you were talking about, you know, in Western culture, when you have this experience, there's no community to come back to. Um, you know, that is a very significant problem. And, and it's kind of a further form of trauma. Um, and I've actually written a couple of short essays about it because it really is an epistemic injustice. It's individuals reporting an experience and not being taken seriously and not being seen as reliable, credible knowers and not having anywhere to get support for that experience. So one experiencer, she spoke at a conference, you know, about a year ago, and she had worked with Dr. Mack and she talked about her experience trying to find someone to listen to her before she found him, you know, and she said, she went to even MUFON, which is, you know, the Mutual UFO Network. And she said, you know, that was just kind of a group of scientists who were doing, you know, readings on UFOs. And they really didn't want to hear a story about an abduction, to be honest. Um, and she said she went to the most open-minded therapist that she knew. And they handed her a prescription for an antipsychotic and said, you know, you're experiencing extreme psychosis. And so many of the people who finally found Dr. Mack found him after you know, basically searching and having nowhere to discuss these experiences. And the culture is shifting a little bit. You know, something we're, we're trying to do is, um, you know, our team at, at the John Mack Institute is, is starting, um, you know, groups that are led by professionals for people who have had experiences if they want to come and get some kind of support because our society just completely lacks that support. So it's like, not only did this happen to you, but it happened to you. And now uh, you have nowhere uh, 
you know, no one to talk to about it. And kind of the more that you talk to people about it, the more isolated that you feel. And that's a very common thing. I mean, most, I think almost all of the experiencers that I worked with this summer, when I asked them about, you know, epistemic injustice or, you know, how they felt isolated after their, um, you know, encounters, you know, and it, it was just, you know, yes, they had, they just, they felt them, they themselves were crazy. They felt the more people they told about it, the crazier they felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's a real problem in our culture that just has no socially recognized ways for talking about these experiences other than to pathologize them and say, I'm sorry, you you need to be medicated is really the kind of the default kind of official reaction of society. And that really is a serious moral harm and something that, uh, you know, we're working hard to try to change that culture so that you can talk openly, speak openly about this and and be supported because that's so important. Uh, the reason that many of uh, Max experiencers were able to then kind of shift their thinking and have this profound change in values was because they finally found someone who listened to them and took them seriously and offered them a place to speak meaningfully about this and felt themselves supported. And then were able to, you know, reframe uh, everything that had happened to them and and, and kind of move forward from it in a more positive way. Um, In terms of the, you know, why, (laughs) why are they doing that? Why are they choosing these people? Again, it's it's really still an open question. I mean, it's kind of the million dollar question, right? It, it, it's um, so many experiencers, as I said, they they walk away with kind of a new understanding of consciousness and, and a new you know uh, framework of kind of interconnectedness. And so, some have hypothesized um, that you know this is all part of. Um, you know, a process of kind of the evolution of consciousness and that they're working on us in subtle ways to um, kind of open us up to to new ways of, of thinking, kind of new understandings. And it's part of a, you know, evolution of, of consciousness. You know, that still doesn't really answer the question of why certain people are being chosen for this more than others. Um, but I do want to say I, I, I personally know two researchers who are very interested in that question of of why are these people being chosen and they are you know a- as we speak you know seeking funding and 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 getting started on you know very serious uh you know multi-year studies trying to answer that exact question and and, mm-hmm. and look at these um try to identify what the patterns are and the people who are reporting these experiences um, why these individuals and not others? Are there things that are actually different about them in terms of even you know their their physical bodies and their and their um, you know do their brains work differently? You know, looking at like you know brain imagery and things like that. So these are very important questions that because the academy really didn't want to do any research on this beyond what Mac did. Um, you know, there there isn't a definitive answer to it yet, but there are people who are you know working on it. Um, again, I, I some have hypothesized, and I think, you know, me me speaking as an individual, of the enough accounts that I've heard of people who are making this this very profound shift in in their thinking and their ways of of interacting, 
it does seem to be related to the evolution of human consciousness. It does seem to be related to, it just triggers some kind of shift in, in, in thinking, but why they're choosing these people and not others, you know, what exactly is the, the big plan, the grand design um, that that's still an open question, but I think it's one that's really exciting and that I'm excited to be part of, you know, various initiatives that are trying to answer it. Mm. Thank you for that. I mean, I have many multi-million dollar questions. I think <laughs> many more. <laughs> you know, it's a subject that is quite fascinated. And I really love that, you know, you're also um, researching and in contact and having discussion with people that it is part of their culture, you know, native culture, traditional cultures, which have explanation, which have answers for many of those questions, right? And I think, you know, any great progress on the subjects that mix the soul and the body or the mind and the spirit and this reality and other reality obviously needs to include people which have still that connection. I mean, in their way of life, in their understanding of the world. And I think we obviously have a, have a lot to learn from that. So um, anything you want to share as we concluding here, any, any other message? And then I, I'm going to remind people a little bit about what's coming up and uh, well, well, we'll let you go. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you brought up the, the Native American worldview. So I'll just speak a, a, a bit on that because um, so, so as I, as we have the Western tradition and, and you know, the, the, the scientific tradition and kind of the lens that they're looking through. And then we have the indigenous and Native American people who have been communicating with these beings for thousands of years, uh, you know, in their in their cultural traditions. And uh, as you know, many Native American people um, even have in their creation stories that they came from star people or sky people, you know, they don't call them aliens. It's, it, it was that they themselves are descendants of people from the stars and that because they are descendants of people from the stars, um, they are, you know, the, the, the people who are being abducted or, or are being, you know, checked up on by, um, kind of our star ancestors. Right. Uh, so, so it's it's really co ongoing contact with with ancestors, but it's not just the you know the the stories. It, it's really in Native American and other indigenous communities around the world. Contact is an ongoing lived reality. So the experiencers that I've worked with that came from Native American traditions had a very different reaction, you know, to the even the abduction experience because for them. This was part of their worldview. This was part of something that they understood. Uh, this was communicating with the same beings that their ancestors had communicated with. And many shamans um, and many medicine people, you know, report contact with kind of sky beings or star beings as part of the medicine that they're or just part of the wisdom that they um, that they receive and the ongoing knowledge that they receive. Uh, so. Yeah, the, the question it really, the answer to it really depends quite considerably on on, on who you're asking. Um, so absolutely, um, you know, I, I say often, you, you know, there's, it's called SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, you ask Native American people, we're not in a search for 
intelligence, you know, for, for extraterrestrial intelligence. We've been having contact with ETs for centuries. It's been an ongoing lived reality. Um, and so it, it doesn't have the same ontological shock uh, to people from indigenous cultures as it does to people who are saturated in the in the Western culture because they realize uh, or because for them, this is, you know, part of their ongoing lived reality. Um, I know we need to wrap up so I can I can <laughs> That's okay. take your time. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, <clears throat> And part of the reason for that is, you know, I, I said earlier, um, you know, Western culture is so saturated in anthropocentric humanism and Cartesian dualism. In Native American cultures, they're not. Uh, they're very open to the possibility of other types of intelligences. They communicate with other types of intelligences, whether that's, you know, their human ancestors or spiritual beings or extraterrestrials. Um, all of that is is part of their ongoing lived reality. Um, RD6 Killer Clark did a series of interviews with contemporary Native Americans, some of them on and off reservations, um, but who have had you know ongoing sightings, ongoing contact. Um, and again, they, it, it's it's looked through through a very different lens than in in the Western tradition because they they're. It's not looked at as something that's obviously pathological or can't possibly be real. It's, uh, you know, some, something that is understood as as part of an ongoing process of, uh, you know, lived contact and communication with beings who we've been in contact with uh, for, for many hundred years, if not thousands of years. Yeah. Um, so much more, right? Um, <laughs> I, I could keep going. I, I don't know. Yeah, like, yes, you know, this is fascinating <laughs> subjects and probably like me, you have, you know, more questions and, and Kim, I really appreciate the, the time and the efforts and, and also your dedication, you know, to work in a, you know, in a very open way to it, first with the scientific method and, you know, with your background or so as a researchers, but also open to include, you know, other worldviews and, and really bringing something that's really potent, I think, when we bring them together, right? So for people that are listening here on YouTube or on, on the podcast, you know, just a reminder that um, the six-week deep exploration of UAP, UFO phenomenon and its connection to shamanic practice, to ancient uh, initiations, to non-ordinary state of consciousness will start on March 6th, so Wednesday evening. Uh, there is going to be uh, six classes. They're going to be live and recorded. I really, really recommend that you join Kim. Hopefully, you get a little taste of her knowledge today. Uh, but I will be going around the, you know, many of the subjects we explore uh, in this podcast. And uh, I think, you know, if you're interested to explore that, if it's a personal subject or you want to hear more, uh, yeah, please join the class and explore it more. But anyway, Kim, I want to thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to connect with you today. Um, thanks for the work you're doing. And yeah, thanks for reaching out to, for this conversation because you reach out to me and I'm really happy to, to help with our platform to, to get this conversation out. So thank, thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this.
yeah thank you everyone and you know a blessed day to you and maybe tonight when you go look at the dark sky maybe you will have a little wrinkle to our ancient ancestors that are up there thank you everyone have a good rest of the day thank you for listening to the sanctuary podcast we deeply value your support Please consider sharing this podcast with others and joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why. Once again, it is patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why. At the sanctuary, we believe that spirituality is a personal journey that takes many forms, and we honor and respect all paths to awakening and the rise of consciousness. Our mission is to provide a platform for open and honest conversations about spirituality and to inspire and empower our listeners to live their most authentic lives in good relation to each other's, the living and invisible worlds. I look forward to connecting with you again here or at our events, retreats and online gatherings. You can find all our offerings at thesanctuaryheal.com. Once again, it is thesanctuaryheal.com.